My name is Duncan Heidkamp, and I do finance. Hi, my name is Kevin, and I'm a dude in my mid-20s. That means I need a podcast as an excuse to talk to my friends. And on this episode of Why Do You Do That? I talked to Duncan Heidkamp. He's one of my oldest friends. He's got great tweets, good taste in music, and experience in podcasting, which made him a great first guest. I even accidentally called him a host at the beginning because he's that good. I certainly had fun talking to Duncan, and I hope you have fun listening. Hello and welcome to episode one of Why Do You Do That? With me, your host, Kevin. Just as a reminder, I have a podcast and this is it. Uh, Today's host is Duncan Heidkamp, one of my oldest friends, former host of My Bully Pulpit. You can go find that wherever you found this podcast. Uh, I brought him on today because I knew he had some experience. I knew he had a pretty interesting job and I thought he'd do a good job of talking to me. He sure loves to talk. Oh, thanks for that, Kevin. Thanks for that. (laughs) You're you're welcome. Now, uh, we heard it in the introduction here, but uh, Duncan, what do you do? Uh, I work in finance. Uh, I'm an investment banker at BMO Capital Markets here in the beautiful city of Chicago. Okay, so uh, I'm going to be honest with you. Every time I uh, like mention you or something, I just started my girlfriend a couple weeks ago months ago at this point probably actually and like oh yeah Duncan he does investment financial stuff and then that's all I can say so what is that I mean can you can you (laughs) can you tell me more of what that actually means yeah sure so I, I think it's kind of interesting because finance is one of those positions that's depicted as like an interesting field in the media so there's like a lot of movies about finance not a ton but like Big Short's a really famous one. Wolf of Wall Street's a really famous one. Um, so there are some big popular movies that have come out recently that depict what I would classify as like high finance, but investment banking is not necessarily what they're doing. Um, I would classify my field as a lot more not driven by like securities manufacturing, which is what they do. They like invent stocks and or like they invent basically what we call technology for funding companies. What I do is at a very simple level, you know how you buy a mortgage on a house? Sure, yeah. Or you get a mortgage. That's a long-term piece of capital to finance a fixed asset. You know how you have a credit card? Bold of you to assume I have a credit card. Short-term, yeah, yeah. Short-term, what we call in the industry revolving credit because when you pay it down, you can redraw it back up. We in my business in working in leverage finance, which is the specific field, we provide mortgages and credit cards to large companies who have like the financial equivalent of sub 600, sub 500 credit scores. So to your less trustworthy companies, we provide long-term financing, big pieces of capital, and also short-term revolving pieces of capital. so my job is essentially if company A wants to go buy another company, they either finance it through debt or equity. And if they're doing debt, we provide that financing for them. We craft the story. We go out to investors. We are connecting people who have money with people who want money. So that yeah, was a but, lot there. Yeah, that was, that was, I'll stop. That, no, that was good. 
So essentially you're, are you, are you doing like research into the companies too? And saying like, this is why you, this is why you reach certain criteria of eligibility for giving or for us giving you money. Are you making that decision or? Yes, that's a good question. I mean, I am, so let's say there's a company, a, a company that makes ice cream. Um, they're one of my clients. I work for them a lot. And so there's a team of four of us in my field. So there's the person who manages the relationship. There's the person who manages the process. And then there's me as the associate. And then there's someone below me who's an analyst. So in my hierarchy, there's four people who manage this company and this product for this company. Um, what we'll do is we will tell them, okay, the markets are really good right now. Here's a proposal. We would like to go out to the market and raise money for you. Or, oh, you're making this acquisition. Here's what's going to happen to your credit score if you make this acquisition. Here's how it's going to impact your cost of capital. Here's like a better way to structure this transaction. So we will advise companies on different ways to raise money, on how to do it. And then as you hit on, we also do a ton of research into what a company does, what are its credit positives, what are its negatives, and how are we eventually going to sell that debt? So for example, this ice cream company bought Halo Top. Have you ever had Halo Top? I, I have, I love it. Yeah, it's I that eat fake it ice pencil. cream. What? Well, check yourself, Duncan. Some of us have magical digestive systems which turn dairy into pain, and uh, Halo Top is one of those lovely ones that doesn't. <laughs> yeah, but you can take lactate pills. Like, those are cheap. You could do those, but I, I take your point. I am personally not a fan of Halo Top ice cream. Okay, sure. But sure. this company decided to buy it. So when they were deciding to purchase it, we we went through a bunch of due diligence and did our research. Um, and so what it came out to be is Halo Top is essentially a marketing company and the person who was buying them does manufacturing. So obviously right there, when we are selling a hundred plus million dollars of debt to people invest in, so just to make sure it's clear to the audience, when you're selling companies debt, so this company, ice cream company, investors are giving them dollars. And because of that, it's an investment, right? If I am loaning the ice cream company $10 million, they're you getting my 10 million and I'm investing it. So it's sometimes an unintuitive concept to think of loans as investing because frequently you're, you were the one asking for a loan. But on the other side of that transaction is someone looking for a fixed return. So we need to create justification for why someone would want to invest that money and get that return. So, you know, if a comp one company is a marketing company and another company is a manufacturing company, the manufacturing company is going to get tons of benefits for acquiring this new brand because they already manufacture it. They cut out all the costs for like middlemen. They're able to like fully integrate it right away. So there's a lot of benefits and we do research and analysis to best sell those benefits to the market to get our client, the ice cream company, the best rate possible. So, and it's, it's mostly like companies coming to you, right? Saying, can you, can you kind of broker this and maybe broker is the wrong word. I don't even know. They're no, saying no, like, good, no. we're trying to find you to go in and figure out where we can get this money from. It's not like you guys scoping out, oh, this company is trying to ex expand. Let's go talk to them, that sort of thing. So it's both ends. We both oh, okay. do pitching and execution. So like a lot of times we'll pitch an idea and then the company will will respond going, that's a great idea, let's do that. Other times it'll be an in-house relationship. 
we know them really well, and then they come to us because they know we're the experts. So it's twofold, but we play both sides there. We, we do both of those. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I feel like I understand a lot more of what you do now. So at the end of the day, just think about it as credit cards and mortgages. That's all we're doing. But instead of homes, it's factories and technology, intellectual property and research facilities instead of a home. So that's really the only way to think about it. And everything else is just, you know, finance mumbo jumbo. Does a, uh, does a company ever like default on a loan or something like that, you know? Or, and do yeah, you I mean, guys, do you handle that at all? So we don't handle that. That goes to something that's called restructuring that my brother works in actually. So he works on the opposite side of the coin out in New York. Uh-huh. Um, and then there's also things called workouts. So a lot of what times will happen is, yeah, if a company can't meet their interest payment, that equals to default. Um, and so you'll basically go through two, one of two forms of bankruptcy. The two most common are chapter seven and chapter 11. Um, or sorry, chapter nine and chapter 11. And I'm not going to get too much into that. But the point is, that might be a, later episode. Lenders, a, a lot of our protection a lot of my job is structuring the loan agreements or the loan agreements so that in the case of default, the lenders get the most money back and also to limit the amount of dollars that can leave the company. So for example, when you, when you purchase a mortgage, there's no restrictions on what you can do with your money, right? Like you buy a house, they give you money. The, all they want back is they want you to pay their interest and pay their principal. When we do that to a company, we had a lot more restrictions. So we would say, okay, you have to pay your interest. You have to pay your principal. Plus, if you sell any assets, you need to give us 100% of that cash. If you have excess cash flow, so cash flow outside of the operations of the business in a given year, you owe us 50% of that. And that's to pay, those are all towards paying back the loan. If you want to sell off certain intellectual property, we have to approve of it. And a lot of this is because private equity firms, which is like a hot topic, both in politics and business, they will do a lot of things to what's called diminishing the credit pool. So if a loan is secured by a home, it would be the equivalent of you selling your pool, but keeping the home. Well, now the home's worth a lot less, but I already, but I issued money because I knew this home had a pool. So it's the same thing. And I could talk about specific famous examples of that, but the point is there's the generic like selling a mortgage side, but there's also a structuring piece to it to make sure that we're protecting our lenders. And I spend a lot of time, you know, reading legal documents, making sure that lenders are getting a fair shake because at the end of the day, that's that's one of the parties we're helping. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Well, now that we know what you do and a lot more of what you do, um, let's go into the the why do you do that? And I still haven't quite figured out how I want to structure this part of it, but yeah. kind of breaking it down into uh, you think of it as like school subjects. So we've got uh, we've got history, geography, biology. <laughs> um, those are the three that I have right now. So uh, we'll start out with uh, one of my favorite classes in in high school, geography. Um, and so you uh, you said you work in Chicago. Yeah. Do you, have you thought about kind of like why Chicago? Like when you graduated from that um, second rate university that you went to, why did you, why did you choose to, to move on to Chicago? 
Um, that's a great point about moving to Chicago. The other point I'm not going to comment on. Uh, I was in a program in school that worked to place people in my field. So we had a group of around 80 of us um, that were trying to be placed in the investment banking field. And it was primarily New York and Chicago. Um, being from the Midwest, loving Chicago, I never felt any particular like drive to go to New York. There was nothing that made me want to go there. Um, and so I view Chicago as a definitely more relaxed city. It's far cheaper. It's closer to family. Um, and I mean, just out of pure luck, really avoided COVID. Um, wouldn't want to be in New York. I had a lot of friends who they were doing their last few months of their first jobs in New York when COVID hit and they were just stuck there. Um, nice. So dodged a bullet um, that was totally unpredictable, but Chicago offers a, a lot of advantages. A lot of my friends who were in my business fraternity in school live in Chicago. I have friends who weren't in any of those who live in Chicago, tons of family. So I would say that my decision to go into investment banking had little to do with my geography choice. I was going to do it either way. But Chicago is a, a a longer term market because I always saw myself coming back to Chicago. Sure. And you know, set your roots down early, I guess, and your tree grows bigger. That's a good metaphor. Is there, mm. you know, I maybe this is a, a question too big for us to determine, but is there a reason that it's Chicago and New York as as the two big areas that you could go to? Yeah. So. First, I would say on a global scale, it's definitely New York and London. Okay. Um, it's Chicago, New York is because of where my university is. Like, we don't have a lot of connections on the West Coast. Um, but New York is obviously the financial capital of the world. So there's going to be high finance located in New York. That's where the banks are headquartered. That's where a lot of the industry takes place. Um, Chicago is a big center for this um, because the Chicago Board of Exchange and the Chicago Mercantile Exchange are located in Chicago, as the name would suggest. And those are huge, like more dollars trade per day in Chicago than New York by like 10 times. Really? Because so many ag contracts are traded. So if you're, if you're General Mills who wants to buy a bunch of corn, there are farmers who are trying to sell a bunch of corn or Typically, there's middlemen who then sell it to farmers. Regardless, those contracts are often traded and settled in Chicago. So that's one of the reasons. Um, if you go out to the West Coast, technology banking, obviously, technology is a huge sector in the US. It, that's it all based out there. Yeah, I, I didn't know. But yeah, but the Midwest is obviously a big food consumer retail sector. I mean, look at Minnesota, look at all the companies up there, um, Michigan, Illinois. And industrials. So food consumer and industrials are very Chicago centric. Um, but yeah, that's more of a sector coverage thing, which we could get into. But yeah, that's that's kind of why my choices are between the two. Um, but yeah, there are other places to do the job, of course. Interesting. So would you say you enjoy being the, the wolf of West Monroe Street? How, how long did it uh, take you to think that one up? <laughs> uh, that one's been prepared for uh, about three weeks. Uh, <laughs> the Wolf of Western Restaurant. Love that. Um, I mean, look, I, I, I really like my that? job. People, <laughs> what? You don't have a T-shirt that says that? At this point? No, I don't. Oh man, I love, I love that though. <laughs> um, I mean, there is an aspect to to finance that kind of 
represents what Jordan Belfort depicts to us, but in, it's really like not that culture. Okay. Like it's more progressive. It's essentially a desk. It is a desk job. <laughs> You're not playing with the enormous sums of money that they are in the, that movie. Like, I don't want to get too far into that, but they're really slinging around millions of dollars to make more, small margins. Like we were a very, we're going to committee to approve these. Like it's very much more standard. Um, methodical approach to, to obviously you're trying yeah. to reduce risk. So yeah, exactly. If there's any shenanigans, it takes place outside of the work, not, uh, not, not in the offices. Okay. Okay. I like that. Yeah. Good to know. We're not shaving anyone's head. Not shaving anyone's head. Um, this kind of gets down to a, a point I was going to talk about later, but like, is are the Allbirds and Patagonia vests are they a required part of the the culture of finance uh, or you know you know it's just a lucky coincidence because they're both so damn comfortable Allbirds um, all I just got my first pair they're so great you did yeah they're, they're great? So great yeah which ones do you have do you have the the, the runners um, or like the... are they tie or slip-ons they are tie they're the runners okay. that you're not actually supposed to run in. Yeah, they're the wool yeah. ones, not the athletic yeah. ones. Yeah. yeah, but they're comfy as hell. They're pretty. They're pretty damn comfy. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, the the vests. I will. The Allbirds are just comfortable, honestly, reasonably priced shoes that I don't feel like I have to defend. The vest. I've actually done some research into this. Like, why is the vest such a thing? <laughs> There's some argument to be made that it was a cheaper. It started to arise around the recession, and it was a cheap like deal gift to give out. But I think what it actually is is our offices are really cold. Like they blast AC all the time. Uh-huh. And a vest is like, it's it's not a jacket. So you don't feel like, it's not in any way trying to like replace a suit jacket, but it is a way to stay warm when things are cold. So as the, as the culture pr- like progressively gets more and more casual, like even Goldman Sachs, who is the premier investment bank in the world, they, they passed a new dress code policy that allows you to dress business casual um like even as that is occurring like the vest will replace what the suit jacket did from a warmth perspective interesting because the offices as i said are cold well and even if the the offices are quote cold we as a culture defined room temperature based on the metabolism of 20 something year old men wearing full suits so huh Oh yeah, you didn't. Yeah, uh, that was something I learned in a, a human factors class back in college, um, and it, it's a what class? Human factors, essentially ergonomics is a, a term often used, kind of huh. synonymously with it. Nice. But yeah, that's so when huh. you when you're cold Wait. and you're not wearing stuff, it's because you're not wearing a suit. Wait, what is room temperature? Uh, generally, people will say like seventy-one degrees or so. Huh. Huh. I love yeah. that little Archon community. It's like, you know, the room temperature, this is the room. Oh, yes, yes. When Troy goes With to the AC, AC repair school. school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it's almost as arbitrary as that in real life that we just kind of defined <laughs> what room temperature is. Huh. Well, you wear vest at work, don't you? I, um, I did wear a vest every once in a while. Yeah. But you're also, appropriating our culture. Thank you back, very much. I mean, back in my last job, I was on the factory floor. So I was wearing like 
button down shirts because we had to, but it was like a hundred degrees and obviously no air conditioning. So, uh, so it wasn't chilly. It was not chilly. It was a sweat stain masquerader, not a sweat stains. We had these little like bands of like cool stuff that you could put underneath your hat. It basically it was just like you'd get a towel wet and put it under your hat, but it was fancy. That's sort didn't of we thing. get one of those things when you're at the fair? We the fair did sell something similar to that, and I never got one, but I do associate them with you because you got them. <laughs> yeah uh, those things those things worked Did it was just a towel it was just a towel no no it was not it was, people it was listening it was not over, a towel. it, it was, was an a, overpriced towel that you purchased <laughs> in a commercial building at a county fair it was a magical cool retaining wet towel just like those toe knives that you got right next door you know they were they were extra sharp <laughs> okay so do you 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 have a very nice knife don't you I, I have a, a fairly nice, I, it, it's not a nice knife, but like it's nicer than what most people would have. At our age, it's a very nice knife. I, yes, I value kitchenware very highly. Yeah, so yes. exactly. <laughs> One of my roommates, he worked for Cutco in high school. And so now oh, we man. have a set of Cutco knives just because he had them back then. Yeah. Good knives are a good investment. And I will shit on Cutco for their sketchy sales practices, but the yeah. knives, not half bad. Pretty good. I thought, I thought they uh, didn't hold didn't hold an edge very long. Is that? Mm. I don't know. I I mean, I've lived with them now for two years, and they've been fine the whole time. That maybe honestly, we maybe we're not using them in like a rigorous kitchen environment, but maybe one of your roommates is sharpening them very regularly. If you work for Cutco, no, we are going to get a sharpener though. I think mm. they might be done because one. Now that you're saying this, my roommate did bring up that. Oh, I think I might get a sharpener soon. There you go. If you want tips mm -hmm. on how to use a whetstone to sharpen those knives, um, I would say that I have experience with it. I've done it like five times and I still don't know what I'm doing. So uh, what's maybe. a whetstone? Oh, it's the, uh, it's basically you rub your knife against a rock and it gets sharper. <laughs> imagine wow, that's primitive. Imagine it's basically like sandpaper in rock form is the best way that I can describe it. And you make it wet huh. that way it, like takes the little fibrous parts the, the metal that wears down that like forms into a paste almost like a very fine paste oh. that uses it to sharpen it's interesting it's the whole thing it's kind of difficult though because you have to maintain a proper angle on the blade um but we are we're not talking about finance at all anymore We've, you know what what isn't finance finance is everywhere that's true. All we were talking us. about pyramid scheme <laughs> Yeah, we we got that. Pyramid schemes are finance, sketchy finance, but finance nonetheless. Sketchy finance, <laughs> sketchy finance. Um, speaking of finance, uh, you should call me Dean Kamen because this is a segue that I'm creating right now. Um, you talked about you sent me an article before this <laughs> about Bitcoin. Did you have a chance to read it? So I read it. I don't fully understand it, which oh, I think okay. is probably better for this interview that I don't fully understand it. But um, we've been talking about, like, you and I have talked about Bitcoin for going on eight years at this a point. A painfully long amount of time. We would be I, millionaires and retired no. in the Bahamas. So I, uh, I did some math before this oh, because no. I wanted to go no, back Kevin. to no. the earliest conversation I remember of us talking about Bitcoin, which was on a marching band trip in high school, my sophomore year of high school, November uh, of no, 2013. No. 
if we had purchased a thousand dollars in Bitcoin, which, which was a thousand dollars we did not have, but which, nonetheless, okay. in this hypothetical situation, yeah, yeah. we're gonna I go just, to the I full hypothetical here. <laughs> we also would have sold, like we would not be still holding on to that. No, we would. At this point. What, what was the price then? Like two dollars? Um, no, back then it was like six hundred dollars. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Um, so we would have only got a Bitcoin and a half, really. A Bitcoin and a half, right? But if we had that still to this day, as of recording on the 23rd of January, uh, we would have approximately $43,000. Yeah. Which yeah, is not the, ab an, it, not the absurd return that it, you know some people have had. No, 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 no. It's an absurd return. Well. Like 40, I, I, I get what you're in, saying. In like, Bitcoin standards. percentage return of, is... Absurd. Yeah. It's 43 yes. times. Absolutely. Wow. Uh, That's yeah, incredible. I, I just wanted to uh, share that with you. Also, as a, as a side note, I know you are a fan of the D Casino in Las Vegas. I love the D Casino. Um, did you know that they are part of the legitimization of Bitcoin? Because in February of 2014, they were the first casino to start accepting Bitcoin. Damn. Yeah. You know what? I still love the D Casino. Like, have I told you? Wait, how do you know that? We've talked about it at some point. We have? Okay. Yeah. God. The horsey game, man. I, I will take your word for it. I walked into the D and it was like 1 p.m. So I just went back out onto uh, what's the name of the street that I can't think of? Yeah, right Fremont. Now? Fremont. Yeah, the, the Fremont Street experience. Walked out back out there. Avoided the people puking from the from the uh, mm -hmm. zip line above the naked guys dancing on the street. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Well, I mean, I didn't avoid those, but oh, of course not. Kidding. Of course not. Parents, you're listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> did not did not go towards the naked people. Um, yeah. Um, where where were we going with that? Oh, Bitcoin. Yeah. Uh, so this that's is story. Bitcoin article. Um, just for like those listening, the article referring to maybe I'll include it in the show notes. Absolutely, um, in the show notes. It's called The Bit Short Inside Crypto's Doomsday Machine. So the title is a reference to a famous book called The Big Short, which became a movie. Um, and this anonymous author, what the, the TLDR of it all, is this anonymous author who has a, quote, substantial amount of his savings in Bitcoin, went down the rabbit hole of figuring out what was going on with Bitcoin. If you haven't been paying attention, it's it's peaked at $40,000 in the last few weeks. And it's been an incredulous rise. Um, it went from around, you know, it went from sub $10,000 to around $40,000 in a very short amount of time, which shouldn't happen um, for any asset, especially one that has no value. But that's aside from the point of this, uh, this article. Um, he basically uncovers that there is a there is a quote pegged currency called Tether, which is also um, also a cryptocurrency, but it's backed fully by the dollar. So it's backed one tether equals one dollar, and it always will. Um, is that and they're what, using? Is that what backed means? It just means uh, defined mean based one off to one, of it. But in this case, it does. Oh, okay. Like I, when the U.S. I, yeah, sorry. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't realize that that's what backed meant. That it's just the. It's just saying like we're defining the the currency ratio or the value off of. Yeah. Yeah. So back when the U.S. was on the gold standard, that meant that the dollar was backed by gold. That you could exchange your dollars for a set amount of gold. Um, there's a lot of currencies around the world that 
do peg their currency, peg or back their currency to the dollar. Um, and so it's not uncommon and it's not predatory or suspect in itself to have a pegged currency. But the gist of it is Tether is a one-to-one -one dollar currency and people use Tether to purchase Bitcoin. And there is a very close relationship between the printing of Tether and the volume traded on Bitcoin. Um, and basically 70% of Bitcoin volumes come from this Tether currency. And if you're starting to put some pieces together, it is not confirmed that Tether is a legitimate currency. So the scam that could be being run right now that has not been proven is that people put US dollars into Bitcoin. So let's say just for example, you put 100 US dollars in, you get one Bitcoin. Here's this Tether currency over here. You trade your one Bitcoin for 100 Tethers. So you're converting back to USD. You feel yep. like nothing has changed. Mm -hmm. But what Tether is doing is they're saying, oh, as an introductory offer, we'll give you five times. We'll, so we'll give you 500 Tether. So 500 USD, look at your return. It's already five times. And then they will offer you leverage. They will say, okay, now you can use that 500 Tether or US dollar. It doesn't matter. They're the same thing. And you can go buy, you can lever that up. You can buy two times your money. So now you have a thousand tether of purchasing power and you can go buy what would be 10 Bitcoin. So you are creating out of 100 US dollars, you were creating a thousand US dollars of demand into Bitcoin. Okay, Half yeah. of that is based on leverage, which is dangerous. And then four tenths of it is based on uh, incorrect valuation is what you could assume. So there's a massive bubble. And now you might be saying, well, they have the Bitcoin at the end of the day, so the people are coming out ahead. But what I haven't explained yet is that that second transaction, that USD or that Bitcoin to Tether and Tether to Bitcoin again at the elevated level takes place on unregulated um, exchanges that are very difficult to liquidate. So they have trapped people on these secondary exchanges while the Tether people are coming out with these essentially pumped up levels of Bitcoin. So I encourage anyone who is interested in investing in Bitcoin to thoroughly read the article ahead of time. Um, I am by no means an expert. I've read a few articles on it, this being the best one, um, but it's very scary. And the parallels between this and the 2008 financial crisis are impossible to ignore. And so there's a little bit of like, wow, I got in on the ground floor of this undercover analysis. So would recommend reading um, and then I'd recommend finding a way to make money off of it. So does that mean that it's because it's creating like an artificial value onto the Bitcoin is why it's, it's a problem? And it's like artificially pumping up the value of a Bitcoin because there's like a thousand dollars worth of demand for it when really there was only a hundred, that sort of thing? Is that correct? It's okay. It, it, it's exactly what it is. It's pumping the demand and then only the people who are selling tethers are getting the benefit. And what, what, will what will probably happen is it'll come out that tether, this currency is worthless. It'll come out that it's not backed by the US dollar. It's actually worth 50 cents in the dollar. And then there will be no demand for Bitcoin. So your Bitcoin levels will fall. Even if you only didn't buy it through tether. Even it if would, you didn't it, buy it through it's tether. It's gonna crash the entire system. 
So the only people will come at it. So the demand for Bitcoin will fall, which will cause the value of Bitcoin to fall, which will in turn cause the demand for Bitcoin to fall. Tether will be worthless. And the only people who will come out of ahead is the people who already liquidated it. So nice. it's a lot like it's a lot like what happened in 2008 with mortgages. And maybe and because people, yeah, because people don't have Bitcoin to back things by now, like that market falls apart. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And, and maybe we issue a, a little bit of a, a CYA here. Um, don't take absolute financial advice from a podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, don't, don't, seriously don't. But, but, you know, go look into it. And when we say, you know, do your own research, we don't just mean like, oh, I did my own research. Vaccines don't work. They do work. And, and watching a YouTube video is not research. Just like listening to a podcast isn't research. But like, go, go talk to somebody else too, if you're, well, if you're And while we're on that topic, reading, quote, reading a three-page Instagram, like, piece of information isn't research either. Those there's, are bullet points. There's a lot read of things that aren't research. Read a book. I mean, I would, I would argue reading an article also isn't research. Well, not in and of itself. But, but it's a little bit closer, you know. Look, I want long form read don't read bullet points on an instagram thing i hate that that feels like half of people's knowledge consumption nowadays is instagram like for your information posts like here are the facts on this and they give you a bullet point i'm like i'm pretty sure there's more context around that i do but love a good infographic though infogra yes yes infographics um aren't preachy though which help them you know that's true. not be that, annoying well yeah maybe they're they a can be preachy, i guess but I understand. I understand the sentiment. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm glad that we got that out of the way. I think it's time. I think the, if you just heard that, I believe the, the class bell rang uh, and we're going to move on over to history class now. <laughs> um, and so we just, we're going to talk about some of your history of like what drew you to finance. Um, maybe you had some experiences in high school or in college, or you have a, a familial history of it, perhaps. Any, anything like that? Yeah. I mean, I'll keep this one short just because we've, we've gone on and I don't yeah. want to bore your listeners, but it, I didn't really know what I wanted to do going into college. Um, and when I did end up going to that university in Bloomington, um, I just, I, I ended up being uh, gravitating toward the student organizations that led into investment banking. And they were just the smartest kids. Um, I wanted to be around them and I wanted to like learn from them. And I got caught up in that environment and now I'm where I'm at. Um, uh, I'm, a, I'm a big advocate of intellectual curiosity and this group of people really embrace that. So I think that's kind of what led me down this field. None of my family's in finance. Um, there, there was no like groundbreaking moment. Nothing. But yeah. Ever talked to you about razor brush in high school? You did not. What is, what is. Did you guys do for um, the Whirlpool case competition? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. That might, I mean, that might've been a foundational moment. Our, our my idea was, um, an electric handle with a battery and a motor in it. Maybe some background for those of you listening uh, in your headphones. Both of us in high school uh, participated in this like high school competition hosted by the Whirlpool Corporation, um, essentially just to like farm out, farm out child labor to high schoolers uh, to develop products <laughs> that maybe 
Whirlpool could then develop. Um, and Duncan's was this razor brush thing. Right? Razor brush. It was just like an electric, like battery powered handle that you could either put a toothbrush head on or a razor head on. Okay. Why keep multiple devices charged? Why carry them around? Um, I don't know. It made a lot of sense to me and Whirlpool didn't acknowledge that. And so I think maybe my goal in life now is to make the razor brush big. Okay. Okay. You wanted to learn the, can we say you wanted to learn the language to uh, convince sure. them that they were wrong? Yeah. I'll say that. that works. At, we got, we got foreign language as a class in here too. Look at, this is really, <laughs> this is really working out. Um, yeah. All right. Well then the next class that we're going to, uh, I know when you went to IU, you probably had recess 101 as one of your core classes. Uh, so that we're was go... actually a senior year. That was like a capstone project. Ah, okay. So we got recess and the best part about recess is all the memes. Uh, do you have any good <laughs> memes from, from the finance world? Oh, you know, man. I mean, I... we touched on the, the, the vest, but anything else? Oh my God. Where, where do you even start? There, there's a community on Instagram it's fin memes. I'm sure there's meme accounts and like meme culture for every profession. Absolutely. But fin memes is like, I would say relatively robust. Um, I mean, these accounts have hundreds of thousands of followers. Um, liquidity, which is a liquidity. joke on the finance room, liquidity, yeah, has 480,000 followers. I mean, some of the, some of the frequent jokes are um, PLS um, fix. So please fix. It's mm -hmm. like a joke about how seniors um, will email you, no comments, I'll just say, please fix. Or, and they'll respond with THX, thanks. So you have like an 80 page deck and they'll just like circle something, go, please fix that. Like they don't tell you what to fix, they just say, fix it. Fix it. Um, other funny things are uh, like the Wall Street Bets community um, is a huge finance meme. Are you familiar at all? I, I have heard about it. Um... Is that also a, maybe a little bit of a, tie, uh, a tangent here, but isn't that also related to what just happened with GameStop recently? Yeah, yeah, we can we can just go straight into that, honestly, that because that I is mean, a meme. Yeah, absolutely. So for those that don't know what's going on, GameStop has had, GameStop, the classic retail location for video games, um, has had a stupid run, like a really stupid run. Um, they were... Well, I'm trying to look at their price here. They were val they had a stock price of $18 for like a long time. Like they were in the teens for well over a year. Um, and then they've recently jumped up to $60. And you would ask yourself, well, what changed? Oh, the, did GameStop get bought by Amazon? Did are they are they selling marijuana now? Like what are, <laughs> what are they doing that would cause their stock price to rise? Um, a company called Citron, who does equity research released a report saying, we believe this stock, you should short this stock at $20. And Wall Street Bets, that is a meme community focused, that's focused on the stock market, basically said, screw you. Um, should I explain what a short is or do most people understand that? Maybe, you know, I know what it is, but you know, maybe <laughs> somebody else so, might need it. Yeah, it's important to understand what happened here. So Wall Street Bets essentially enacted a short squeeze. Um, and so what you do when you short a stock is you purchase it. So I purchased a share of GameStop and then I loan or I sell that contract of GameStop to someone else. Um, 
and I am owed back and they give me the cash. So let's say, let's say it starts at 20. I sell the GameStop to them. I receive $20 and then they have to give me a share of GameStop back. And so they make money if the stock goes down. So if they have, if they buy something for $20 and they have to give it back to me, that same unit, it doesn't matter if it's worth 50 or 10, they have to give it back to me. So, so Citron released this report that says you should short GameStop and Wall Street Bets decided to do what is called a short squeeze. They raised the price a ton. They started to like increase volatility, bid up the stock. And then once the stock gets so high, it doesn't make economic sense for all of these people who are shorting it to continue shorting it. They have to cover their losses. They have to start buying the stock, which juices it even higher because all these people who were trying to short it are now buying it and pushing the price up, which makes even more short sellers have to buy it because they're all going to start losing money on their contracts. So it's called that because you're squeezing out the shorts by pumping up the price. And that is basically the nutshell of what happened originally with GameStop. And it's ridiculous. And it is, it's memes come to life on the stock market. It, and there's nothing like built into the, I guess, you know, quote, the system to stop that from happening or like, is it just permanently so, I mean, that high now? What, why? So, I mean, like, people might, can, people might short it. They're like, look, it's not worth this much. We should short it here. But then you're so afraid like wall street bets could and there's other people too like we could talk about robin hood but basically like retail investors could continue to push it higher and then you would keep losing money so i think most people would agree gamestop is not worth 65 dollars a share but also if people pay for it that's how much it's worth so it's it's difficult and there there's nothing in the system to stop it because that's how the system is supposed to work Okay. But we can agree if it should work that way or we could disagree. Yeah. I, I have no idea if that's how it should work, but I guess yeah. that's what happens. Honestly, I don't so either. Move with it. Interesting. Have you, uh, another question I had on my list, have you like learned anything that like makes you respect other, other like career paths, other positions because of the vantage point that you have now? you said you you had on your team you had an analyst and you and you had kind of the whatever the step above you yeah, was yeah, like yeah. the manager level of it or is there anything like you're yeah. like oh that's something that i didn't even consider before but i really understand it a little bit better now hmm. i mean it's a pretty linear path like you you move up so like all of those positions above me are positions i could become mm -hmm. but i think I think given COVID and the position I'm in, it gives me a lot of respect for um, basically anyone who's not in finance, really. Like, I am I love my job. I love my employer. I love what I do. Um, but at the end of the day, like, we're not saving lives. Um, and so, especially in a time when hundreds of thousands of people are dying, like, it makes you put into perspective what matters and acquisitions getting done that's important like companies continue to operate so they continue to pay employees like that is important it's not useless but it is put it into perspective and i respect all my all the people above me and i you know aspire to be at their level and perform as well as they do um but 
I don't think like being at the job has drastically changed that view. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree anymore. And I think that's a, a great place to wrap up our discussion on finance. Do you have anything you want to say? Yeah, some cute takeaways here. Um, I mean, if you're thinking about careers you want to go into, I'd say finance is one. If you're interested in about learning about a lot of different sectors, as I mentioned previously, like intellectual curiosity is a, a really key point of the job. And then also, if you want to make a lot of money, the, the pay is good. And I'm not ashamed to say that's part of the reason I do it. Yeah. Go into finance, kids. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Duncan.